with you, please open it to the book of Exodus. We'll be at the end of chapter 20. Be reading into the 22nd chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find it on one of those Bibles in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And you can find Exodus chapter 20 on page 57 of that Bible. When I was a young man, to me, the most intimidating man in this planet stood about five foot, ten inches tall. And I knew that there were people on TV who were probably stronger than him, and I I knew that there were people in movies who were more violent than him, but in real life, those people seemed to be nice. Arnold Schwarzenegger seemed to be a pretty decent guy, and, and he seemed kind. You saw interviews with him and things like that. But this man was a real man on TV, and I was terrified of him. He was Mike Tyson. He, he was easily the baddest person that you could possibly imagine. At five foot ten, he started to carve a way through the heavyweight ranks. As, a, as kind of a smallish man at that level, he was destroying people. Eventually, he came up against a gentleman named Michael Spinks, and Spinks was six foot three inches tall, and he was also undefeated. And all the pundits and, and everyone who looked at this fight said, uh, you know, Mike Tyson's got this, this power, but Spinks is a, a dedicated, technical fighter. He's six foot three. It's going to be hard for Tyson to get in on him, and, and Spinks is going to really test how good this, this Mike Tyson guy is. And, and he did. He tested him for 91 seconds before Tyson knocked him out. And there was a string of TKOs and, and knockouts that Tyson had that just, he was ferocious. I was freaked out about how hard and how fast he moved. He was terrifying. And that was before he got a face tattoo. So that, you know, this is, this is saying something, right? He's known for not just his exploits in the boxing ring, both good and bad, but also for a famous quote. Because at that time, people talked about how he was just a brawler. He, he, he just threw punches hard, but... Boxers are used to getting punched hard, and if you, could, if you could do the technical things of boxing well, if you could move around the ring quickly, and you could pick your points to, to strike at him, and you could defend yourself well, if you could do the technical things, you could make a plan for him, you could scheme around him, you can beat him. When I asked about this, Tyson gave the famous quote, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that quote basically means everyone, everyone thinks that they've got a plan, and they might have the most beautiful outline that they've got for how to beat me, but they've never been punched by me. And when I hit them, they will know that their plans aren't going to work. In a sense, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, something of a plan. This is the plan by which your lives will work well. This is the plan that God has given so that when these things happen, as they ought to happen, the best things will occur. If, if this plan happens, then there will be peace and there will be glory and there will be goodness and there will be milk and honey flowing everywhere. The question is then, what happens when sin hits people in the mouth? What happens when things don't go as planned? What happens when people do the very things that people are going to do? Well, God is indeed a tougher opponent than Michael Spinks. And he is not swayed by the power of sin, nor is he caught off guard by how hard sin can hit his people. But in giving the Ten Commandments, he immediately then turns and gives a reaction to sin. How are his people to react to sin? What is the plan that he has for that? And it's not just sin. It's just 
the sinful nature of our world. The accidents happen. Horrible things can happen in this world. How are his people to react to this? In our text today, we get methods by which to handle these particular issues. And here God is presenting his people with the idea of justice. How to do what is right when things go wrong. Our passage is a fairly long one this morning, but we will read it together. If you would read with me, beginning in Exodus 20, where we left off in verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build on it hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint a place for you to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my Take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel, with one, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall, be surely, shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned about it but not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there, he shall, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over and lets his beast loose and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that the stacked grain or standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey, or an ox, or a sheep, or any beast to keep safe, and it dies, or is injured, or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make full restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This, even this, is the word of our God. Let us first talk about how these rules align with the commandments that God has just given. Let's talk about the commandments and justice. In the first place, these commands are there to say what should happen when you look at the Ten Commandments. This is what people ought to do, what God is desiring for them to do, the way in which they would live a good and flourishing life in society with one another. 
In that case, justice is done somewhat immediately. By doing the Ten Commandments continuously in your life, you are, it seems, upholding justice. So even on the face of it, these rules that come afterwards are different by nature than the ones that we've already found. There is something of a discipline in the former commands because they are formative ones. They are how you ought to live, right paths to take so that all might be well. And the the latter of these is certainly not quite that. They are how people ought to act, but in a corrective sense. This is corrective discipline. This is the way in which we make amends, we make things right, and we restore them. In that sense, while they are alike, they are also very, very different. But we would do well then to see that there is truly a connection between these commandments and the Ten Commandments and the Decalogue and between what we read here today. And this, I think, is very important. The pursuit of justice is nothing less than the pursuit of love. If the second tablet is nothing less than to be summed up in the idea that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, the second tablet being those commands that we have between one another that that we will not steal and we will not murder and we will not commit uh, adultery and we we will not do the, the evil that is listed there. And Jesus is able to sum that up by saying, this is how you love your neighbor as yourself then justice is nothing more than reestablishing that love. And the lack of justice is nothing short than a lack of love. In our culture, I think Christians today generally follow our culture in this. We tend to think of love as an emotion. We tend to think of love as a frame of mind, a way we think about people or the way we think about things. And it's not that that is, is wholly wrong. I think Paul tries to direct our attention to those things in something like 1 Corinthians 13. I don't think that pure altruism is exactly what the Bible has in mind when it comes to love. But the Bible clearly has actions at the forefront of love. Love for people in the Bible and and love the way it's spoken of in the Bible is not primarily how you feel about anything. It is not primarily how you think about anything. It is primarily summed up in the things that you do for others. It's the way that God's love is shown to us. Not just that he feels like loving us, but that he demonstrates his love for us in this. While Christ Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Love and justice go hand in hand. And that accords well to even something like forgiveness. Forgiveness. Sometimes people think that once you're forgiven, there is no sense in which you have to then make justice happen. So that if you have wronged a neighbor, if he forgives you, then, then all is over. And the Bible, I don't think, upholds that at all. Restitution is part of justice. You actually are more prone to promote justice because you have been forgiven. So for instance, when Zacchaeus knows that Jesus is coming. He climbs up in the sycamore tree and calls Jesus over to him. And and Zacchaeus, before Jesus really has much time to say anything to him, says this, Lord, he's a tax collector, so he he has taken taxes from the people of Israel, given them to Rome. He's seen as this incredible, insidious sort of turncoat on the nation of Israel. He says, listen, if I have I've been made rich out of this, I will give half of my money to the poor. And if I have wronged somebody, I will pay them back fourfold from what I have stolen. And Jesus doesn't look at him and be like, man, let me tell you about forgiveness. You don't need to do that. No, he seems to imply, no, Zacchaeus understands what forgiveness is. Salvation has come to this house today. He was lost, but now he's found. This is the nature of forgiveness. 
it means that we are more prone because God has forgiven us to make restitution to those around us. Not because we seek to have a standing before God, but because we seek to love our neighbor. To pursue justice is to restore the love of the neighbor. Secondly, let's talk about the centrality of justice. We talked about the commandments and justice. Now let's talk briefly about the centrality of justice. If this passage does anything for us, it ought to highlight the role that justice is meant to play in the project of God's reclaiming the earth. From the very beginning of the Bible, this has been the thing that we have been pushing for. God is working out a plan by which he will reclaim the earth as his own. He will make all things right because things have gone wrong. Love has been broken. Brother immediately attacks brother. The earth is so filled with violence and bloodshed that the, intent, the intentions and thoughts of men were only evil all the time. The people of Israel, even being redeemed by God, can't help but grumble and complain and lack faith against Moses, who has done nothing but good for them. Obviously, we can turn to the person of Pharaoh and see how evil infiltrates every pocket of Egypt. So, justice needs to come. And we need to listen well to what these things say, but not just listen well to what they say, but listen well to where they say it. Because there's many things that have been broken in the fall. Not only our relationship with one another, but our relationship with God. How do we get back to God? How do we stand in God's presence? How do we make things right with God? Well, we know that there is a centrality in everything that we proclaim when we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we talk about his birth to go to the cross, we, we have before us the Lord's Supper this morning. We know that justice and sacrifice stand at the center of everything that we proclaim, that he is a sacrifice before God so that we might come into the presence of God. We get to all of that. Exodus is chalked full with talk about the tabernacle, the things of the tabernacle, the, the curtains, the dimensions, the holy of holies, the priests, the offerings, the sacrifices. All of that is incredibly important. We would say it's central. And yet after the Ten Commandments, God delays talking about any of that in order that he might talk about justice, about how we are to relate to one another. And it's not that we're trying to downplay the sacrifices, and it certainly isn't that we're trying to downplay worship before God. But we are to see that justice and concerns for justice between people are not secondary to worship. They're not secondary to sacrifice. Because justice is not secondary to love. It is central to both. Righting wrongs in the world is what God's people are to be about. Third, let us talk about the commonality of justice. The commonality of justice. These laws are primarily between individuals. Frank owns an ox. Frank's ox gets out and it gores Carl's. Two very solidly Hebrew names. He's got to make restitution now. It's between Frank and Carl. It's their issue. It's their problem. You might see it from a distance, but it's really between those two, and you expect that those two are going to work it out. And a number of the laws are like that. We're going to get to laws that are a little bit more social in nature by, their, by the way in which they're, they're written and talked about. But, but really, we would see these things as, as much more individualistic, 
We would say that they're given to everybody because while Frank's ox might have gored Carl's, tomorrow it might gore mine, and I need to know what those laws are as well. Let's be very clear in reading these laws. There's a very strong implication that if you were to sit in your house and be righteous in all of your actions and to do everything right as it concerns your neighbor, and when your neighbor wrongs you, you follow the pattern that is laid out here, But if you knew that Frank's ox gored Carl's, you knew that he needed to make restitution, and you knew that Carl was unable to get it from him, that he was being recalcitrant in the very way in which he was handling the situation, and you did nothing, you were guilty as well. You're not innocent because you're not pursuing justice. These rules and these laws are given to everybody, not simply because they might one day affect you, but because they always affect you. They always affect you. Even if these problems don't happen to us, and I don't know if any of you own an ox. I don't, so it's unlikely to happen to me. But nevertheless, even if these won't happen to us, To know what pursuing justice will look like is good for our neighbors. This is what we are called to do. And we're talking about loving our neighbors. Let's think of the parable of Jesus when he talks about the Good Samaritan. When that man is beaten and he's lying dead on the side of the road, the people who pass by him are initially the ones who ought, we would think, to help him, to give him aid and comfort. When the Samaritan comes, he has no claim here. He's not one of the Jews. It's not his people laying on the side of the road. He didn't rob them. He has no obligation to help them. It is not his business. But he makes it his because he's a good neighbor. That is what it means to love your neighbor. That when you see injustice happening, not just against you, but against others, you seek to make it right. That's what good neighbors are there to do. There is a commonality to all these laws. And even though they might seem like they're individualistic, like they're between you and your neighbor alone or between two of your neighbors alone, they are for all of us. We all pursue these things together. And that brings us to our fourth point, the longest and the most important of them, and that is the calibration of justice. These are called rules at the very beginning. I, I, would, I would say that I don't think that you should think of them as commands and you shouldn't think of them as rules. Not only because a lot of these things are not going to apply to us today, but because I don't think that that's actually what's going on here. I think that what's going on here is there's basically one law and a whole bunch of examples as to how that one law ought to work. This is something that law schools still do today. It's called case law. And what they do is they take a law or a series of laws and they examine different cases and see how that law is applied. And I think that that's precisely what the Lord is doing here. I think that that law is caught for us at the middle of our passage in chapter 21, verse 23, when the Lord says, If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's what scholars call the lex talionis, what in common terms is just the law of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And you talk to people, they sometimes think of this as some, some sort of barbaric practice where if, if I accidentally poke your eye out, 
that you get to poke mine out and then everything's square and we both just kind of grimace and hold our hands and think, okay, we're good. We hug it out. But that's not exactly what this law means. What it means is that justice has to be balanced. That if there is going to be punishment for a crime, it has to befit the crime. Too much punishment is not good. Too little punishment is not good. We're going for Goldilocks just right. And so what we need to have is balance. But the problem is you and I, generally speaking, don't know how to balance what is valuable. We don't have the right balance. The Israelites aren't going to have the right balance. So what God is doing is giving case after case after case to say, this is what balance looks like. And simply to make the point really, really clear, it's quite obvious that when he says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that he doesn't mean that this is something to be, to be laid out literally because the very next case that he gives after saying that is about losing an eye or a tooth. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, the slave gets to poke him right back. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say he gets to take his master's eye. It says he gets his freedom. If the master knocks out a tooth, well, he doesn't take his master's tooth, but rather he gets freedom. The point isn't to apply that, that sort of pithy, understandable statement literally, but it's to understand what it means, that there is to be balance between the justice that is carried out and the crime that has been committed. As we go through this particular passage, there's a bunch of ways in which we can start to learn to calibrate ourselves. And this applies, I think, steadfastly for us today as well. Let me point out just a couple of those things. First, the weak and the vulnerable are highlighted in these passages. And specifically, the weak and the vulnerable at the very place where the vast majority of our culture would look at this text and say, don't you see, the Bible is so backwards and archaic and wretched because it allows slavery and it allows the mistreatment of women. And I'm telling you that that both of those, slavery and the way that it speaks of women here, are actually the case where the Bible is upholding the poor and the vulnerable, the weak, those who are most likely to be oppressed and giving them hope. Far from being barbaric and archaic, it is the most modern of all things. Let's take slavery. And I've spoken about slavery many times before. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this. However, I do want to make mention even the use of the word slavery here, not too terribly happy about it. I don't know that it should be called slavery. I think it should be more like servitude because after all, when we think of slavery, we do not think of what's going on here. And it takes a little bit of adjustment. What seems to be the case is that this is more of a, a way to handle debt in Israel. So you buy a slave because he has some sort of debt issue that he can't pay off. You get to keep him as a servant for six years, but after six years, that gentleman is perfectly and completely free. It's a way of handling these situations where if somebody's got $30,000 worth of debt, but they can't pay it off. In Israel, there's no filing bankruptcy. There's, there's no FDIC. There's no falling back on the government. You are at the behest of the people around you. You, you would lose your property. You would lose the ability to feed your family. You would lose the ability to feed yourself. You would be destitute and done. And God says, that should not be the case. So you will become a servant. And for six years, you and your family will work. You'll be fed. You'll be taken care of. You'll have shelter. 
And hopefully at the end of those six years, you'll be able to stand on your two feet. And if your master thinks that he got value out of you, then awesome, everybody wins. If he thinks he doesn't, tough. You're gone. Six years you work, seven years you're free. This is, in a sense, welfare for Israel. There's no government to fall back on. So this is a safety net that God has created for people. And the same is basically true for women. And again, if you look at this from a modern standpoint, you can kind of stand aghast. But remember, this is primarily an agricultural people. They're going to be growing crops and, and grazing sheep. It's a lot of labor. And this also is fairly economic in its outlook. It's not talking about the value of people, but more importantly, the value of labor. So when a family has a daughter born into their midst, she has value to them, high value. They love her as a daughter, but she also carries with her economic value. She has work that she can do. And a lot of that is physical labor. Yes, women did a lot of physical labor. We shouldn't make it seem like they didn't. But the physical labor was primarily the value of men. Women, while providing some of that labor, also provide a completely different type of labor. They gave birth to people. And you might think, well, we, just, we shouldn't reduce women to just giving birth to people, but I'm telling you, in ancient societies, that was immensely important and incredibly valuable. The fact that women gave birth to other people when people died of everything, right? If you looked at bacteria wrong, you were going to die because there was no antibacterial for you, right? There was a number of ways that you could die. You broke your leg. You might die from infection. There's any of a number of ways in which people died back then. The, the life expectancy was low, so repopulating that, getting laborers out there, especially for a family. To be able to have people who could make money and bring it back to a family and help that family was an incredibly important thing. And when she left that family to marry into another the original family was going to lose all that labor. It wasn't that they only treated her as though she was an economic proposition. That's not true. But she was at least that. It mattered to them. And so a dowry was paid. Something was paid to that family because that family was losing that labor forever. And the, the case that we have here in chapter 21, there's, there's translation problems here. It says in verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, again, I think maidservant is the right way to go with that, she shall not go out as male slaves do. And what he means by that is, is she's not to be sent out after six years. Because again, that could mean disaster for her. She can't just go out and find another job. She can't go out and be a laborer. There's a reason why. And notice that immediately the text shifts to thinking about her as a wife. Not because this is all that she's good for, but because this is the typical role that women played. No one in Israel would have blinked an eye at this. If the man purchased her so that she would become his wife, guess what? No matter what happens from that point on out, he's got to treat her as he would treat a wife. The text implies here that she has actually become his wife. I don't think that the way that it's read in the ESV, I don't think that that's what's meant. I think what means is like Joseph and Mary, he's betrothed her. He said, I will make you my wife, and he has purchased her from the family. Okay? If he has done this for himself, he has to continually treat her as a wife. If he has done it for his son, he must treat her like a daughter. At no point in time does she become like some cart that he has bought that he gets to treat however he wants. She is not property of his. She is a relation to him, and he is always to treat her that way. If he finds somebody else that he wants to marry more than her, 
What the text says is very clear. If he has not consummated the relationship with her, which would be married, if he has married her, then there's a whole different set of rules. But if he hasn't married her and he finds someone else to be his wife, he cannot diminish what the ESV says is food, clothing, or marital rights, which makes it sound like they're married. That probably is not quite right. A gentleman named Sprinkle translates this, and I, I think that this is right. Delicacies, fineries, and cosmetics. He can't diminish her delicacies, her fineries, and her cosmetics. In other words, food and clothing just make her a slave, right? You, you don't just get to treat her like that, but even the great things that you would give your wife, the good things that you would give your wife, you can't diminish them at all. And if you do, she gets to go out and go find another husband and marry somebody else, and you get not a penny for it. You lose her labor, and you don't get to be re reimbursed for it. This whole thing, when you understand what's going on, reads like a way to protect women. It's to protect them in a culture and in a time in society where there weren't many protections for them. It is going out of its way to protect those who are poor, to protect those who have gone into debt, to protect women, to protect children who are born into those families. All of these laws, even those, and especially those here that might make us cringe as modern people, the emphasis is on helping the poor and those who are open to oppression. And secondly, we find that within these laws that life matters a lot. Life matters a lot. There are numerous cases that demonstrate this. If you take a life, you will lose a life because life matters a lot. To take someone's life is a grave, grave injustice, and therefore you will lose your life in response to it. There's no other way to go. But we see this even in cases where we don't read anything about the loss of life. So this is slightly different than a lot of codes that you get when you look around the ancient Near East. Famously, there is the Code of Hammurabi, which you can go visit in the Louvre. And the Code of Hammurabi has a couple of things stated about robbery and stealing. First, there's numerous laws in Hammurabi, I think 140 or something like this. I'm just picking out two, but I don't think that I'm doing it unfairly. If anyone is committing a robbery and is caught, then he shall be put to death. Notice, he shall be. That's the punishment. If you are found robbing someone's house, you are to be put to death. Another code in there says this. If anyone steals cattle or sheep, or a donkey, or a pig, or a goat, and it belongs to a god or to the court, the thief shall pay thirtyfold for it. If they belong to a freedman of the king, he shall pay tenfold for it. If the thief has nothing with which to pay, he shall be put to death. First of all, there's this weird thing in the law of Hammurabi that it depends on who the animal belongs to, the cost that you are to pay. More people, more important people, get more clearly better treatment. That's not found anywhere in the law of God. From the king to the most pauperish pauper who ever popped, all of them have the same treatment given to them. But compare that particular statement, both of those statements, to what God says in chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. And immediately in that passage, you realize something's different about the way God is speaking about this than the way that Hammurabi speaks about this. The emphasis is saying, don't worry, you're not guilty for his blood. Hammurabi is saying, you have to kill him. And God says, his life is so important. 
that I don't want you to worry that the guy who's robbing you, you're going to be guilty for his blood. If, it's in, if, it's, if he's robbing you and this happens, it's fine. But notice there's a provision here. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In, in the night, things can happen. You might not know what's going on. You might have just been woken up from your sleep. Any, it, it's chaos. And, and maybe you don't know what you've done and maybe you don't know what's going on. And God says, you won't be guilty of bloodshed then, but if you can look him in the eye, if you can see him, if it is not the nighttime where there is confusion, but it is the daytime and you kill him, you are guilty of bloodshed. Even thieves have lives of worth. And his life, God is saying, is clearly worth more than anything he could possibly take from you. This is extended not just to people who are stealing things. He goes on to say, if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. He's not going to be put to death, but he is put into servitude so that he can pay, literally, for what he has done. And in seven years, you know what's going to happen? He's going to go free. It's not just in, in stealing things. People are responsible for preventable accidents. So if, if Frank's ox does gore somebody, and, and it was the first time it ever happened, then the ox is put down. But if, if he's gotten out and he's done some things before, and the neighbors have looked at him and been like, you know, your ox is a little crazy, and he's like, mind your business. And then it happens to kill somebody. Notice, he dies. Even if it's an accident, if he said, I didn't, I didn't literally gore you, it was my ox. No, man, you had an opportunity. Life matters. And to be wasteful or negligent of life will cost you your life. It should be noted in all of this that God is requiring out of us a great deal of wisdom. These, these are pretty particular laws. And you would not have to imagine too hard that Israel is going to come upon a number of situations that don't look anything like these. God isn't providing us a step-by-step -step case for every single thing that can happen in Israel, let alone every single thing that can happen in our lives. The idea is that if you understand what God is saying here, you find the importance that God finds importance, and you're able to weigh values as God weighs values, then you will rightly seek justice in the world and apply an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Justice has never been about just applying these laws as tightly as possible, but about rightly loving neighbors, loving those who have done wrong and loving those who have wrong done to them. It is about protecting the weak, upholding what God calls good, and punishing what God calls evil. It is a monumental task that has been put forward to the people of God. Those insistencies that we pursue justice are no less ours today than they were theirs then. Certainly it looks different, and certainly we've got to adjust for cultural things. That's where the wisdom comes in, but it is still the task that is put before us. Micah 6.8 remains as sort of the keystone text in this. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If you can do those three things, you are perfect. God has no other requirements on you. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God.
God loves justice. And he shows us that by the very things that we are here to celebrate. The advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been sent to this earth, so that he might, as we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, die. Because while God is an incredibly merciful and loving and forgiving God, he also loves justice. He loves the fact that the wrong that has been done to him has been paid for. He also loves the wrong that has been done to you being paid for. You are not being shortchanged in any of this either. Jesus pays for all of the sin. And so God, in loving justice, sends his son to die for us because we are worthy of death. We have done the things that God has told us not to do. We have kept ourselves from the things that God has commanded us to do. Many of these things are worthy of death in and of themselves. That is why we celebrate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Not just because he has given us salvation. That's true. It's a good reason. Not just because he has done this an immense act of love for us and it grants us freedom that we never had before. All of that is true. But we also celebrate it because we too love justice. And we love justice because we love our neighbors. So today we will eat of this meal in thanksgiving and in gratitude because as we celebrate Advent, Jesus was sent and as we celebrate the Eucharist, he has died. We eat and we remember the brokenness of his body, the spilling of his blood because it is in these that love and justice meet. Let's pray. Father, give us the desire and the zeal to pursue your law, not for our own salvation or as proof of our worth, but as a desire of our heart that we might pursue the love of our neighbor in all our ways. And by doing so, may we help others see the glory of our God, the good of his word, the might of his power, and the joy that his people have in serving him. May our lives glorify you in all our ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you will.